of God's Word, Philippians chapter 1. I want to read verses 3 and 4, and then we're going to jump down to verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. This is God's Word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And then down in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, as you know, we're doing a series of sermons titled a uh, Gospel Field Practices. And last week we saw the first of these uh, series of sermons around that theme of Gospel Field Practices from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, on what it means to have an attitude of gratitude. And so this morning our focus is going to be still along that series of Gospel Field Practices from the book of Philippians. We want to talk about an abounding love, the grace field, gospel field practice of an abounding love. If I were to ask you today, how is your love life doing? What would you answer? And no, I'm not asking you about your romantic life if you're married, okay? I'm not asking you if you're single about your dating life. I'm asking you about the current state of your love towards God and toward other people, maybe beginning with those in your home and extending out into the church and out into the world. How fervent and how passionate and how intense is your love in the present toward God and toward others? This is a very important question for us to ask ourselves because of the prominence given to love in Scripture. You may remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13 and verse 35 concerning the importance and practice of love. He said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And do you remember how Jesus answered the guy who came and asked him concerning the foremost commandment in all of the law and the prophets? He said this, he said, love for God supremely, comprehensively, and love for your neighbor. Do you remember that? Jesus spoke much about the prominence of love. And then Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, wrote to the church of Corinth and really elaborated extensively about the character of love, of agape love, and even said there that the greatest of Christian virtues is none other than love. There's much in the New Testament, especially the whole Bible, that points us to the prominence of love, to the fact that we ought to be people who consider love important to pursue and to foster in our lives and practice love toward other people. And even here in our passage, we began seeing last week and throughout, we're going to see throughout the book of Philippians, that Paul speaks much about his love for these Philippian believers, especially in verses 7 and 8. You know, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus, he says. And then later on in chapter 4 and verse 1, he's going to say to the Philippian believers, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, and in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You think he loves these Philippian brethren? He loves them. He's going to talk much about that throughout this book. 
And so love is prominent in Scripture. It's prominent in the heart of God. And it should be important to us as well. And it's for this reason that in the midst of expressing his love for these Christians, now Paul prays for these believers that they would grow in their love for God and one another. Last week we saw that he's full of just a heart of gratitude for these believers. And one of the evidences of Paul's thankfulness is his desire to petition God on their behalf. We saw that in verse 4, right? If you look there. I'm always offering prayer, he says, with joy in my every prayer for you all. He says, always, continually I'm praying for you as I think about you, as I'm filled with gratitude, and I do this with joy. He prays voluntarily for them. He prays comprehensively for all of them, right? With a variety of prayers. He says, with every prayer, I pray for you. So Paul prays for them. That was the introduction right there of his prayer life in verse 4 for these Philippian believers. But now that he's introduced prayer in verse 4, we see him zero in on verses 9 through 11, and we see the content of his prayer. Next week, we're going to come back and cover verses 7 and 8. But I want to talk about and consider the content of Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11 here. There is substance given to his prayer. As a gospel-fueled, gospel-energized believer, Paul understood the central place that love should have in the life of the believer and in the life of his church. And so his focus here in verses 9-11 through in terms of the content of his prayer is on the quality and the intensity of of the love that they should have for God and for one another. And so as he prays for their love life, there are four attributes of this Christ-like love that he prays for here. And I want us to consider these and contemplate them and apply ourselves to them this morning. First of all, I want you to notice the first attribute that he prays for them is that they would have a growing love. That there would be a growing love among them. Look at verse 9. He says, And this I pray, and here's the content, that your love may abound still more and more. Everything in verses 9-11 through 11 elaborates expands upon, even accentuates the quality and the intensity of their love life. How they ought to be growing in love for God and in love for one another. Everything which follows will put meat, if you will, on the type or the the kind or the quality of of the love that they ought to have for God and for one another that should be on display. Paul says, as I think about you, Philippian believers, my beloved, and I thank God for you, I also pray for you that your love will continue to to mature. That your love will continue to be enlarged. That your love will continue to keep growing because they haven't arrived. They haven't arrived. Now, he's not rebuking them. He's already affirmed them. They've shown their love for him and for one another in many ways. It was 10 years ago that this little church was founded when he writes here, and they've been generous towards Paul. They've displayed their love for him again and again for his ministry and supported him even materially for the gospel ministry that Paul was unfolding. And they even sent Epaphroditus, one of their own, to check in on Paul as he sits there in jail with certain limitations. And yet Paul is rejoicing in the midst of that. But to some extent or another, this is a loving church. But like a faithful shepherd, he's reminding them that they haven't arrived. This is always so important for us to be reminded of, right? We never have arrived, brethren. You and I are not as loving as we think we are. We're not. 
as individuals or as a church. And there is always the danger that we, that we grow complacent, that we become cold or indifferent in our love for God and others. And so we must always be pressing forward to abound, to grow exceedingly in our love for God and our love for others. In a passage that we saw just a few weeks ago, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 7 through 8, you remember this text? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And then he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is writing eschatologically there. He says, you guys who are beginning to suffer believers, you're beginning to be opposed, you're beginning to be persecuted, as we see from where they were sitting then, the end, the end approaching and the coming of Christ potentially. He says, we need to be continuing to practice hospitality, serving, he says, and grow in your fervency in the way that you love for one another. And that word fervent there has the idea of, of a stretching kind of love. Love stretchingly. Implied in there is self-sacrifice and rigor and hard work that you're willing to do in order to love someone. Love stretchingly, he says, in the light of the end. Well, what kind, what kind of love is Paul praying that they would grow or abandon? Well, it's agape kind of love. It's not this emotionalism kind of love, but it certainly includes your emotions, right? Husbands, if your wife asks you to wash the dishes or take out the trash, right, and we do it uh, as if it's like duty-driven, it's drudgery, and it's like, oh, fine, then I'll go take it out, honey, but, but my heart is not there, right? How does she feel about that? She wants our emotions, right? Our affections. It should be loving service for our wives. Same thing with agape love. Oftentimes people focus on the fact that agape love is the love of choice, the love of actions, no matter of emotions. Actually, God wants all of us. All of us. But it's not restricted to that. Agape love is the love of choice, the love of action. Agape love is the self-sacrificial giving of ourselves for the good of another person. Ready? Regardless of reciprocation. Regardless of whether someone responds to you. But my husband, he never seems to get it right. I keep being kind to him. Or my wife, I continue to be kind to her, love on her, and she never reciprocates. Listen, God is going to deal with your spouse. You just continue to practice agape love. Amen? You be kind. You serve. This type of love doesn't come natural to us. It's divine love. It's supernatural love. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through His Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 5, 5. That means that this is a, a divine, supernatural love. Only the Spirit of God can produce that in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So we must ask for it if we are struggling to manifest it. So I don't know how often you pause in life to just... Examine the fervency of your love. To ask God, Lord, grow me in this area of my life. Help me see the blind spots in my life. Those things that I don't tend to see. Those insensitive spots in my life. The things that I tend to miss in my heart for you and my heart for other people. I don't know how often you make it a habit to self-examine. I think examination is a great thing. Not in a navel-gazing kind of way, guilt-riddenness, right? But in a way where it actually becomes a, a catalyst for you then to be renewed and to seek forgiveness and confession and say, Lord, help me in that area. Oh, brethren, I need that every single day as your pastor. 
So I take it that you're probably the same way. Amen? We need to be confessing those things to the Lord. And how often then do you pray that God may grow our church in love? Because we haven't arrived. It's the heart of, of Philippians, right? The Philippian church is a very loving church, but they haven't arrived. He says, I want you to grow in your love. I want you to excel still more, Philippian church. How often do you pray for our church? That we would grow in fervent love for one another. Practice forgiveness and reconciliation. Ask for forgiveness and extending forgiveness from the heart that we may abound and grow in agape love. Again, the self-sacrificial giving of ourselves for the good of another person. Regardless of reciprocation, regardless of whether someone responds to you or matches your kind of love. And this love is not dependent on the, on the loveliness or worthiness of its object. Just think about God's love for you. God did not look upon Campus Hernandez back when I was 17 years old and say, oh, Campus, he's a, he's a pretty good guy. You know, I'm not going to have to go very far to save him. Nuh-uh. I was a wretched dude, man. God saved me 100%. And it was not because I was worthy, brethren. It was not because I was lovely. Neither were you. You weren't. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4? After talking about uh, the fact that we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, remember that? I love that. Even. That word just brings it out, doesn't it? This is where you were, man. But God, even when you were in that spiritually dead state, running the opposite direction, He sought you out. Right? By grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. So, applying ourselves to that kind of love. Not perfectly as only God can. But brethren, we need to remember that we don't love people because they're worthy of it or because of their loveliness at all times and vice versa. We love them because this is the kind of love that God has displayed for us. Remember also that this love is not stagnant. It's not passive. It's not reactionary. This love is dynamic, proactive, and expressed in kind actions towards others. This is tangible, practical love in action. That's all 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? All of those are action, actions that we perform as an expression of our love for God and love for others. This kind of growing love is the polar opposite, isn't it, of the world's kind of love that we're describing here? Polar opposite. What does the world say? The world says, if someone says something I don't like or treats me in a manner that I don't like, I have a right to become indifferent towards them. I have a right to avoid them. I have a right to even uh, retaliate as you see people in our society doing, right? Just turn on the news. This morning, a couple of news... um, places that I subscribe to. You know, things popped up. People retaliating. The potential threat of another country going into war again. All of that. We see this all over our society. Hatred. Hostility. But God's kind of love, brethren, is a stark opposite. God so loved the world that He what? Say it. He gave. He gave. God's kind of love is... Displaying kindness even in the face of unfavorable treatment. Even in the face of people rebelling against Him. 
This is Christ-like love. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 is a beautiful passage describing our, our Savior when He was suffering on the cross and before that. It says that He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in His mouth. He, of all people, if anyone was innocent, it's Jesus. He's innocent. He's the perfect God-man now and forevermore. He was innocent, and yet, it says that while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds, you, Christian, were healed. The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus displaying the ultimate wondrous example of self-sacrificial love, brethren. Even in the midst of people attacking Him and being hostile against Him, He displayed that kind of love. He's our example So if you want to grow in this kind of love, you need to daily contemplate the cross of Christ. Amen? The person and the work of of Jesus. Remember that. It's what Jerry Bridges used to call preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Visiting the foot of the cross. Not of a Savior who's still there, but risen. Amen? But He went there, suffering the ridicule of the cross for our sins so that we would be People who would be forgiven. God's love for us in the face of Christ, brethren, is the uh, contemplating that is the greatest antidote against a heart of, of hatred and hostility and bitterness within. Contemplating what God has done in Jesus. I have found no greater way of doing this, of overcoming my own bitterness over the years and my own hostility in my heart toward people then coming back and being reminded of what God has done for me in Christ, right? 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because He first loved us. God has shown us what true love is. And we only understand how to love other people as we come to understand all the more the infinite value of His love for us in Christ. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another, Jesus says, just as I have loved you. See? As we contemplate His love for us, then we can follow that commandment with delight. By the way, there's something also inter-Trinitarian about this kind of love. Inter-Trinitarian. John 15, 9 says, Jesus saying there, just as my Father has loved me, I also love you. Abide in my love, he says. There's something inter-Trinitarian about this kind of love, isn't there? Think about that. God the Father loves the Son in this wonderful, eternal uh, relationship that they have as Father and Son. God the Father loves His Son. His Son loves His Father, right? And Jesus says, out of the overflow of that inter-Trinitarian love, I have loved you, believer, and now you, out of the overflow of that, you need to be growing in love for God and love for others. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Man, studying the nature of God is wondrous and so only as we abide in god's love for us in christ brethren can we grow in love right ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 be imitators of god as beloved children and walk in love just as christ also loved you and gave himself up for us we need to abide in that love may i ask you today are you growing in love for god and love for others beginning with those in your home How's your love life today? 
Christian, how's your love life? You say, Pastor Kempis, what does that look like? How do you think about others in your heart? How do you think about others even when you're away from them? Your spouse, your parents, uh, parents, your kids, context of the church. How do you think about others in your heart? What fills your mind as you think about those people in your contexts of life? How do you speak of others to others? How do you speak of them? Paul is going to really elaborate on this throughout the book of Philippians about how we think about others and how we speak about others to others. And how do you treat others who are in your circles of life? How do you treat others on a consistent basis in your, in your marriage, in your parenting? Kids, how do you treat your parents? How do you treat those in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you treat people in the, in the workplace? Do you see a growing love for people in the world who need Jesus? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son? That kind of love? Do we, are, are we growing in our love for, for sinners? You say, well, I, we don't want to adopt their thinking. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about adopting their thinking. I'm talking about loving them with the gospel, loving them with kind deeds that bring glory to Christ so that they ask concerning who and why we do these things that don't make sense in the midst of a broken and fallen world. And then we can say, let me tell you about Christ. It's not of me. It's about Christ. I want to put Christ on display. Are you growing in your love for even those in the world? Those are good questions to ask ourselves. As we transition to our second point here, we're challenged to continue growing in our love. That's the first attribute of love, a growing love. But secondly, he's going to talk about a discerning love here. That's the second attribute of love here, a discerning love Paul prays for. And we see here in verses 9 and beginning of verse 10 that this love has some friends. It's got some companions. Look at verse 9. He says, I pray for you. I'm praying for you that your love may abound still more and more. He says, in real knowledge and all discernment. You see those? Those are the companions of this type of love. This is a discerning love. And he says, to such an extent, in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. What we see here is that the kind of love that Paul is praying that they will grow in is not some superficial love. It's not some sentimental, emotionalism kind of love. It has substance, doesn't it? It's a discerning love. In fact, Paul uses these these qualifiers to modify the type of love that we are to, to grow in, these companions, these friends. First, he says, in real knowledge, he says. The type of love that I want you to grow in is a discerning love in real knowledge. That word there, knowledge, is the basic word for knowledge with a little word in front of it, a preposition which intensifies the meaning. That's why the New American Standard highlights that by putting real knowledge. The ESV doesn't catch that. It's okay. But the New American Standard does real knowledge. You see that? This refers to a a fuller knowledge, a deeper knowledge, a, a growing knowledge. What kind of knowledge is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about some general knowledge or some secret or elite kind of knowledge like the Gnostics of Paul's day used to promote and and preach and all of that. He's speaking of of an ongoing deeper knowledge of God. A deeper knowledge of His Word. Significantly, the word that Paul uses, by the way, here 
Translated real knowledge is a word, epigenosko. It's an intensified form of the word for knowledge that has to do with, with experiential knowledge. Experiential knowledge. It's a word, it's a knowledge of God and His Word which leads to, to practical wisdom that's seen in our Christian experience. That's what he's getting at here. In other words, it's not just some intellectual head knowledge. We're so accustomed in our, in our circles, especially in, in churches where the Word of God is, is preached and it should, for us to just grow fat in knowledge and intellect. Yes? And apply nothing or little to nothing. We've got to be very careful with that. Paul is talking about a, a skillful living kind of knowledge. Wisdom and practice, knowledge applied. What James talks about and refers to as being a doer of the Word rather than he, and a hearer who is self-deceived. That's what he's getting at. So we are to be growing in love, but we are to be growing in a discerning kind of love. Listen, it's a love that is informed and regulated by truth as defined in Scripture. Mark it. That's what he's praying for here. A love that is informed and regulated and shaped by truth as defined in the Word of God. Truth has to do with reality. That's almost a synonym, biblically speaking. Truth is reality. Seeing things as God sees them. Truth as opposed to illusion. Truth as opposed to what is falsehood and deception in our society. That's what we're talking about here. Well, Paul says, I want you to grow in this kind of love that is discerning, informed and regulated by the truth. Listen, lots of folks talking about love right these days, but it's not Christ-like love. It's not biblical love. Maybe you've seen the LGBTQ slogan, love is love. Have you seen that? I was jogging the other day and passed by four different houses with the sign on there, and one of the first statements on there was love is love. Love is love. It's all over the place. And by that statement, what is meant is that love is a, a universal human experience. Check. And therefore, ready? All forms of love are valid. All forms of love are valid. So, if a man loves a man romantically, it's all good. Love is love. If a woman loves a woman, right, romantically, it's valid. Love is love. Hey, if a human loves an animal romantically... That's legit, and who are you to say anything about it? Because love is love. What about if an adult loves a child or a minor in the wrong kind of way? Who are you to speak against that? Because, hey, love is love. It's going that way, isn't there? Isn't it? Have you seen it? Are you aware of it? Open your eyes if you're not. All of these forms of so-called love are valid because love is love. And who are you to tell anyone otherwise? And you're unloving and unhateful, if you, or hateful rather, if you speak against those things. If you bring God's truth to bear upon those things. No, you need to not only support it now, you need to promote it. That's what you need to do. And fund it. That's where we're at, brethren. That's where we're at. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, the Christian needs to raise up a red flag and say, the fact remains that before anyone came into existence, before the foundation of the world, God designed one man, one woman to be in a beautiful complementarian relationship, a union called marriage, and it's between one man and one woman for life. No matter what the culture says. 
Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Amen? He doesn't change. His principles don't change. He wants holy people who are set apart. So don't drink the Kool-Aid of the culture. It doesn't matter what the culture says. But this is where we are. And yet we as Christians, we need to practice a discerning love and unpack these destructive and deceptive ideas of so-called love and put them through the grid of the Word of God, through the truth of Scripture, what is reality as opposed to what is illusion, what is truth as opposed to what is falsehood and deception. This is us as believers. Truth and love are Siamese twins that we can't separate, brethren. John chapter 1 says that Jesus, our wonderful Savior, the God-man, was full of grace, and say it with me, truth, both. He was full of grace and truth. We need to be the same way if we're going to be Christ-like. Yes? Now, He did it perfectly. We can't do it perfectly. We need wisdom and grace and the power of the Spirit of God and and counsel from godly people and, and the Word of God, looking at God's Word so that we might hold truth and love together in the way that we assess things and the way that we love our world, right? Secondly, notice there's another friend in real knowledge, but he qualifies this growing love by saying it's, it's in all discernment. You see that there? All discernment. That word discernment, there is the, we get our English word aesthetics from that word. Aesthetics has to do with the nature and appreciation of that which is beautiful and tasteful and delightful to the eyes. But here the meaning is primarily with reference to ethical morality as God would define it. It's with reference to one's ability to, ready, to distinguish between, between what is good and evil. That you may be able to know God in His Word so well that you might be able to distinguish between what is good and evil. But I want you to know it's even more than that kind of discernment that He's calling for or praying for. Look at verse 10. He says, So that you may approve the things that are excellent. Oi. Somebody asked me the other day, well, so what's your favorite language? Um, you like Aramaic, Hebrew, Pastor Campus, or Greek? I said, I love Greek, guys. I love Greek. Here's one of my favorite Greek words. Translated approve, the word dokimatso, right? Dokimatso, it's a, it's a great word. It refers to testing something for the sake of approval. And it brings to mind that intense process of exposing gold or precious metals back in the day to intense heat in order to determine the authenticity or genuineness of that particular thing. And in this process, the gold would be exposed repeatedly to intense heat, and as that process was repeated, the the impurities already, the unapproved part would surface, would rise to the surface, and one would skim off the unapproved part. And so it would go through this many times. And eventually what was left would be the genuine, refined, ready, approved part. The refined, proven gold. And what Paul is saying is, you see that picture? I want you to be able to do this in your Christian life. I want you to be able to grow in this discerning kind of love so that you may be able not only to distinguish, ready, between what is good and evil, but also distinguish between what is good and best in the Christian life. That's what he means by excellent there. See it? The sermon is not just the ability to distinguish between good and evil, but also between what is good and excellent or best or vital in the Christian life. Boy, that's good, isn't it? I love God's Word. This is so important, brethren, because often the Christian life comes down to these types of choices. It's not always that something is evil in and of itself. It's whether it is what is best for your life. Yes? 
A new job. You're considering a new job. Should I? Should I not? There's no sin in it. As I sought counsel and I, as I've been praying and looking at God's Word, there's no sin in me leaving the job. But should I? Should I not? What is best? What is most excellent? You need to be able to grow in discernment in that area. Maybe the type of education you want to pursue, the type of school, the type of career that you want to pursue. You could, be, you could do any of these three or four different things. There's no evil in and of itself in some of those choices. But what is best for the kingdom of God? What is most excellent that God wants for you? Yes? What about the type of, if you're a single person, the type of, of person that, you, that God has for you to marry? You don't want to settle for the second best, right? You want to settle for, for the God's best for you. That's where this is so important. Whether to invest into money into one thing over another. If I invest here, this is going to be the, what that, that's going to produce. If I invest here, where can I invest that is best so that I can actually invest into the kingdom of God, right? And bear fruit for the kingdom of God. See why discerning love is so important today? Discerning love is also so important, brethren, because we're living in a world, again, that calls evil good and good evil, yes? And anyone who brings the truth to bear upon this unloving is, is unloving or accused of hate speech but god says real love is regulated and informed by my truth god's kind of love is not naive it is not blind it is not superficial kind of love it's full of discernment and full of biblical substance it doesn't compromise the the truth you know people have said over the years to me you know campus essentially doctrine doctrine divides you got to understand, you teach like that, that's going to divide people. And I say, preach it, amen. We shouldn't ever make ourselves the issue, yes? But if we're opening up the Word of God and preaching the unadulterated Scripture and, and you, and it's direct, right? It's going to divide people. It's going to confront you on your sin. And you know what? At the end of the day, that's exactly what you want. Because if you don't see your sin, you will not savor the Savior. You will not be drawn to Jesus. In salvation or as a believer, again and again being dependent upon Him for your sanctification. Doctrine divides, but listen, doctrine is teaching. Healthy doctrine, sound doctrine leads to sound living. Hear that? Sound doctrine leads to sound living when applied. Don't forget that last part. You don't apply teaching and you hear great sermon after great sermon from preachers here in this pulpit for years or whatever or online and all of that, but you don't apply the Word of God. It's not going to lead to sound living in your life. You're going to continue to do the same things that you were doing before because you're not applying the Word of God. Your thinking, to your affections, to your actions, to your priorities, to your decision-making, etc. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. And God's kind of love is discerning because we have the truth at the center of everything that we do. The truth as He defines it in His Word. This also applies to the spouse. To the spouse who claims, you know, I fell out of love with my spouse, you know, or I could not help falling into adultery, or, or I fell out of love with someone else. Listen, you didn't fall out of love. You're out of your mind, if anything, right? You didn't fall out of love. Your lusting is what you're doing for somebody else. There's evil desire in your heart, evil passion in your heart. That's not biblical love. Someone who's not practicing God's kind of love is led to those kinds of things. But biblical, God-like kind of love is regulated and shaped by what is true, true as defined in His Word. This also applies if you're walking in sexual immorality. Listen, sleeping around, sleeping with somebody who is not your husband or wife, committing adultery, having an affair, 
Committing fornication, in other words, having intimacy outside of marriage, delving into pornography, and being living comfortably in that kind of sin. Sexual immorality, sexual pornea includes all of those things. You can't say that you love someone if you're living and giving yourself over to those things. You can't say you love someone. You can't say you're loving God. You're not walking in the truth. You're walking in lust, but not in biblical love. See why discerning love is so important? As someone has so helpfully said, true love is most concerned with the purity of its object. True love is most concerned with the purity of its object of love. If you love someone, you will want their purity. If you love someone, you don't want to hurt them. If you love someone, you want them to be, to be holy. God said, you shall be holy for I am holy. Remember that? Also, if you adopt the lie that the issue of same-sex marriage or homosexuality or transgender or whatever is an issue of one's freedom of speech or of expression and not sin according to God's standards, then you're not walking in God's kind of love and a discerning kind of love because love and truth work together cohesively. Truth is reality, not an illusion as God defines reality. Well, how do we grow in our discernment, brethren? How do we grow? Obviously, contemplating the beauty of Christ, but also exposing ourselves daily to God's Word. Amen? Daily to God's Word. And positioning, might I add this, positioning yourself in community and in fellowship with others so that you learn and apply the Word of God together because you cannot be everything that God wants you to be, Christian. Listen to me. In isolation. You cannot do that. That's consistent with the New Testament. It's inconsistent. You will never glorify God. You will never grow as much as God would want you to grow if you don't practice biblical community with other believers, not just Sunday mornings, throughout the week. Do you think that the reason why we rant and rave about small groups, right, Greg and others, because we, we want to, oh, these are the rules of East Church Baptist Church. We want you to be a good little Christian who follows up and gets involved in a small group. We, we're telling you to do that for your good. Because we want you to be spiritually healthy. Position yourself accordingly. For the glory of God, for your good, for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, you're not going to know God's will by looking within. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, right? You're not going to grow in discerning love by looking at the culture around you. The culture is hostile to God. You're not going to um, know this discerning kind of love by proudly relying on your human intellect. Without God's truth, we are at best fools and blind people. You're going to grow in a discerning kind of love by doing what Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Metamorphosis, metamorpho, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your thinking. How? By means of the Word of God. Yes? There's a whole ministry built on that. Ligonier Ministries. By the renewing of your mind. Renewing your mind. That's how we're going to grow in discerning love. So Paul prays for a growing, discerning kind of love. Thirdly, he prays for an enduring love. Write that down. An enduring love. Look at the end of verse 10. We're going to have to go through these, through these a little quick, okay? In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, he says, I pray that you would grow in a Christ-like kind of love so that... You will endure until the end, until, he says, the day of Christ. He's, also ref he's already referred to the day of Christ in verse 6. And so I want you to note this. 
Paul is praying with an eye to that day when they will face and see Jesus, not for the sake of being punished for their sins, but so that they will be prepared to see Jesus, the lover of their souls. I would love when my wife would go on a long journey to another country or whatever, and whenever I would get back, she would always have the kids ready to go. They took a bath. They got their little clothes on and all of that, and they meet me at the airport, and they smelled good, and then we went and had a great meal together, right? She prepared them for the day when they would see their daddy when he got back. Brethren, this is the kind of eschatological mindset that Paul is praying for these Philippians to have. That one day when they see Jesus, he's speaking to the, the glorification of these believers, And he says the kind of of love that's going to fuel you is going to be one where you are looking in anticipation forward to the day when you see Jesus. Therefore, operate in sincerity and blamelessness with integrity. Like 1 John 3 and verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, if you live with a sense of loving anticipation of when they seeing the lover of your soul, then you are going to walk in holiness. What Paul describes here is living in sincerity and blamelessness. Walk in integrity is what he's calling to. He's praying for them for this. Sincere carries the idea of genuine sincerity of motive. Blameless has to do with with being free of fault or a life free of offense before God and others. And put together, Paul is saying, in light of your future glorification, I pray that you will walk in integrity in the here and now. This is the personal responsibility part, right, that many Christians actually don't like. They say, once saved, always saved, right? Get off my back. But they should also be heralding this. Once saved, always changed. Once saved, always changed. Pointing to a life of sincerity and blamelessness in preparation for the day of Christ. This is why we need an enduring kind of love, brethren. What's this enduring kind of love look like practically? Well, each day we're confronted with choices, aren't we? Choices to sin or choices to obey. Sinful images pop up on your screen, whatever screen that may be. What will you choose? Will you walk in sincerity and blamelessness or will you compromise? What about each day being confronted with the reality of loving your spouse? Will you walk in sincerity and blamelessness in that area, or are you going to be lazy and abdicate your responsibilities in the context of the home? Each day you're confronted with whether you're going to work honestly in your job setting and be the hardest worker and and achieve that promotion by hard work and integrity and honesty and having your, your bosses back. Are you going to do that, or are you going to actually manipulate and cheat behind the scenes? Every day we're confronted with choices. And brethren, in these life contexts, if we're, you, can choo- you can pursue obedience to the Lord by your own moral bootstraps, by a sort of unhealthy fear of God as if God is your enemy or your ogre or an ogre who is out to get you or by, or by guilt-tripping yourself, you can pursue those things. Or it will be an enduring love. The kind of love where you are continually contemplating the glories of Christ. And that becomes a catalyst for you walking in righteousness before the Lord. Last but not least, fourth attribute Paul prays for here is a fruitful love. A fruitful love. Look at verse 11. He says, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. The sense at the beginning of verse 11 there is 
the fruit which consists of righteousness. In other words, the fruit that is, that is a righteous life. And what Paul is saying is that as our love is strengthened and growing in discernment and in endurance, it should lead, it will lead to a pattern of practical righteousness. It will be a fruitful kind of love. A love that will produce right living. We are positionally righteous in, in Christ. That doesn't change if you are in union with Jesus. But we are also called to practically live righteously. This is what he means. By fruit, I think Paul is, is pointing to even passages like Galatians 5, right? Walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Or even Ephesians 2.10, doing the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. And I love the qualifier there, he says, he gives, which comes through Jesus Christ. You see that? Christ is the gracious pipeline through which we are able to live righteously, brethren. And it's all then to the glory and the praise of God. You see that in verse 11? We're not pursuing any of these things for self-promotion, for self-glory, because we want others to think well of us. We're pursuing these things. And Paul is praying that they would have this kind of love so that ultimately God would receive the glory. God would receive the adoration. God would be praised in the hearts of these believers. And so he says, I pray that you will grow in loving, fruitful righteousness so that much is made of your heavenly Father. And so we end where we begin, brethren. How's your love life in the present? How's your love life in the present? Are you walking in love toward God? In secret when no one else is watching? And then as an outflow of that, are you growing in love for others from the heart? Forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness. Extending it. Reconciliation. There's nothing more loving that we can do. Few things more loving than practicing forgiveness. Amen? In the Christian church. How is your love life? And I might add, as you think about love, per what we just discussed in this passage and contemplated, is your definition of love a worldly definition or is your definition of love a, a biblical one that is regulated and shaped and informed by the truth of the Word of God? May God help us to make sure that we define love as He defines it. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for these wonderful passages that remind us of Your love for us and that apart from Understanding your love, Lord, we cannot possibly love in the way that honors you. Help us, Father. We are weak people. We need your grace and we need the power of your Spirit to help us to be people who are fleshing out genuine, authentic, sincere kind of love. And what's amazing about that is that you've made that possible through regeneration, causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead so that we are able, Lord, more than anyone in this world as believers, we're able to love sincerely and blamelessly and fruitfully. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.